next couple of Sundays, if you don't know, our son is getting married next Saturday, and then we're uh, going on vacation uh, the day after that. Uh, a couple of our interns, Ryan Harold, next Sunday, Zach Feldman, the Sunday after that, are going to be preaching, continue on in the series. So don't lay out because I'm not here. You need to support and encourage them. They're going to do a great job. And uh, I also know that some of you are here today, uh, maybe, or you know, at least very curious about what this big announcement is that we've been uh, advertising. And uh, we're going to save that till the end. <laughs> because um, if you, uh, if I told you now, uh, you, you wouldn't listen to anything else I had to say. So, and it's not as good as the love of God, although it is pretty awesome. It's awesome enough that I shed a few tears over it. So it's it, that big, okay? We, we, we actually have... Um, Two really cool announcements we get to make today. Just for those of you who inquired, though, just so you'll know, we're not leaving. So, yeah, sorry if that's disappointing to any of you. That's one of the questions we've been asked. We're not reopening the coffee bar. Uh, so, so, sorry for those of you who are disappointed uh, on that. And, um, and especially, I'm not getting a cat. Uh, that, that, that's not the big announcement. So, just so you'll know. But, you know, about... 30, 35 minutes is coming, so let's focus on the, the love of God in the intervening time, though. Um, we live in a lonely world. Uh, loneliness was a big problem before COVID. It's a pandemic in and of itself now. Um, from 2014 to 2017, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy was the Surgeon General of the United States. And this is something that he said about the epidemic of loneliness. He wrote, We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Today, over 40% of adults in America report feeling lonely. Once again, this is pre-COVID. And research suggests that the real number may well be higher. Additionally, the number of people who report having a close confidant in their lives has been declining over the past few decades. During my tenure as U.S. Surgeon General and in my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. The elderly man who came to our hospital every few weeks seeking relief from chronic pain was also looking for human connection. He was lonely. The middle-aged woman battling advanced HIV who had no one to call to inform that she was sick. She was lonely too. I found that loneliness was often in the background of clinical illness, contributing to disease and making it harder for patients to cope and heal. Loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity. But we haven't focused nearly as much on strengthening connections between people as we have on curbing tobacco use or obesity. Loneliness is also associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. At work, loneliness reduces task performance, limits creativity, and impairs other aspects of executive function, such as reasoning and decision-making. For our health and our work, it is imperative that we address the loneliness epidemic quickly. 
But since he's written that, pre-COVID, pre-2020 election, pre-racial unrest, you know, riots, all these kind of things, think of how much more divided and isolated that we've gotten. I mean, we're at a crisis point. And what's the solution? I believe the solution is the love of God poured out in our hearts and then shared with others. But the reality is, a lot of times, the church is part of the problem instead of part of the solution. We're part of the rock throwing and we're part of the uh, you know, disagreeing and fighting and, and, and anger and uh, you know, just being so issue oriented that a lot of times we forget about people. I mean, I think a lot of times in, in church, we do better at singing about love and talking about love than actually being loving. I read a book uh, several years ago. I won't, I won't name the book or the author, but it's about being an authentic Christian, which the irony of it is the pastor who wrote it is now out of ministry because of a sexual scandal. But he, he started the book talking about a uh, conference that he went to one time, uh, you know, like a Christian conference, where there was a knockdown, drag out fight over some kind of, I think it was a doctrinal issue, but over some issue in a, in a particular session. And so, you know, at the, when the time was up for the, that particular session and they transitioned into the next session, they uh, opened the session by singing the old song, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds Us Together in Christian Love. And if we're honest, a lot of times, that's how we act as Christians. And so, what I want us to, to see today, and, and, and through the course of this series, we're going to talk about God's love for us, our love for God, our love for others, even loving our enemies. We're even kind of going to go back to last summer when I did a series about justice and talk about justice and love and how those things work together, which will really address, I think, a lot of big issues in our society uh, today. But uh, we're kind of going to look at a passage today that kind of is the foundation and, and kind of you know, touches on all of these things. And so let's look in John chapter 15 and see God's love for us and then how that's to work itself out in our lives. And just remember, you know, John also wrote in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love cast out fear. That that becomes really the foundation for our lives. And so Jesus said this, you know, the context of this is shortly before his death, He's preparing his disciples for how to live, how to minister after he ascends back to heaven. And the beginning part of this chapter is the well-known scripture about uh, abiding in him, you know, like the branches and the vines. And um, so picking up in verse 9, he says, as, or if it is literally translated from the Greek, just as the Father loved me, I also have loved you abide in my love. Now, when I said I can't preach this 1% as good as it deserves to be preached, I'm primarily referring about that phrase right there. That's mind-boggling. I mean, just try to 
grasp this for a second. You know, the, the Father and the Son, the eternal Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternal God, like John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, when it says the, the Word, the Son was with the Father, the little preposition in Greek literally means face to face. Throughout all the eons of eternity, the Father and the Son were in this face to face intimate communion, love, relationship together as they're being worshiped by the host of heaven. And Jesus says, just as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Just as the Father loves me, in the same way, that's what my love is like in your life. And like I say, I wish I could grasp that, explain that, believe it better. But I think if we began to get it at all, it is life-changing. Because if we're loved that way, what do we really have to be afraid of? What do we have to be anxious about? What do we have to be worried about? If we're really loved in that way. But he says to abide in my love, remain in my love. He's talking about the experience of his love. How do we do that? Well, he says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So, so do you see the progression here? Uh, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the us, loves us, and then we're to love others with the same kind of love. I mean, wouldn't that be world-changing if that happened? He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. But think about it, Jesus laid down his life for us when we were enemies of God, separated by our sin. He says, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So let me just point out some, some truths from this text and how they apply to our lives. Number one, Jesus loves us just as the Father loves him. Jesus loves us just as the Father loves him. Absolutely mind-boggling. Now, I want us to look at some other scriptures maybe to help us understand it a little bit better, maybe help us hopefully shed some light on this. But in Matthew 3, 17, and, and this is uh, repeated in different gospels. This is in the context of the baptism of Jesus. Same thing is said on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it says, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus is the son of God by nature, okay? Um, we are the children of God, the sons and daughters of God by adoption. 
You see, sometimes in the New Testament, when we're called sons of God and it applies to males and females, it's not a bad translation. It's not a gender issue. It's a contextual point that he's making because in that day and time, the firstborn sons had the right of inheritance. And so spiritually speaking, if you're in Christ, whether we're male or female, you have the right of inheritance like a firstborn son. And so think about this. So if, if you're a child of God by adoption, you're loved with the same love by Jesus that the Father loves the Son with. That means, in a sense, God is saying to us, you're my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Now, let's be honest. When I say that, there's something inside of me that says, I'm not good enough to rate that. Do you understand? That's grace. That's our identity. That's who we are in Christ. That's how loved we are. That's how accepted we are. Ephesians 1, 7 says, and him we have redemption through his blood, uh, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And in that same passage, it talks about us being accepted in the beloved. Listen, we're accepted, we're loved. God is pleased with us, not based on our performance, but based on the performance of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a child of God. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was the cost of God's love. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Demonstrates means that he proves his love for us. You say, I'm too bad to love, or God doesn't really love me. My life's so hard. Listen, suffering is not, suffering does not mean that God doesn't love you. Hebrews 5.8 says, talking about Jesus, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Think about how the father loved the son, but he still suffered. Why did he do that? To learn obedience. Listen, our suffering we may not like it, but it's part of God's good plan for our lives, for us to learn obedience, for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, for us to bring him glory, uh, for it all to be worked out in eternity, like we talked about in, Ephesians, or in Ecclesiastes two or three weeks ago, that God is setting it all right. God's working it all out according to his eternal plan for our good and for his glory. He loves us. He just, he just does. That's who he is. You're loved. It's not based on your performance. And if we could ever get past this performance thinking and just look to the cross, that's where we're going to find freedom from our sin and our guilt and our shame and our identity issues and all these other things. We're loved. You're beloved. He's well pleased with you because of Jesus. There's a Christian psychologist named Mark McMinn who wrote a story 
about uh, encountering a young lady in his church who had recently become a Christian. And, and he says this, he says, she described her childhood in a home where self-esteem was the primary virtue. And I, just, I think this is just so important for our society today. He said her parents taught her that she was delightful, talented, <clears throat> good-hearted, intelligent, and witty. Having spent several months with her in a small group, I tended to agree with her parents. But as she talked about her spiritual awakening, she acknowledged that something important was missing from her incubator of childhood self-esteem. Somehow, deep down, she always knew that she was not quite as great as her parents thought she was. She knew that there was an intrinsic need for healing, an inner darkness, a moral decay, which was also part of her character. As she ventured into the traps of promiscuity and drugs, she felt like an imposter, as if no one could know about her true self or they would stop loving her. What she longed for was authentic awareness of her good and bad qualities, but a love that was a bit big enough to embrace her regardless of her sin. When she turned to God as a young adult, she found what she had been longing for, one who knew every dark corner of her soul and still chose to give her love, forgiveness, and grace. Self-esteem and positive self-talk could not meet the deepest needs of her heart. A sound theology of sin and grace was her, her only hope. You see, because it's when we see actually how sinful that we are but we see that Jesus still died for us, that we know how loved we are, and we know what the grace of God is, and we see that we can't work for it, that we can't earn our salvation. It's what he has done for us, but the cross proves the love of God. But then the response, verse 10, and that is that we abide in his love through obedience. This isn't talking about earning the love of God. God is love. It's talking about how we experience it. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, parents, if, um, if your kids tell you they love you every day, but they disobey you about 100 times a day, how loved are you gonna feel? Like scale of one to 10, how, how loved you feeling? <laughs> I think that's the point of what Jesus is saying here. That our love is expressed by our lives. Our, our love is expressed by our actions. The reality of God's love is unwavering and unchanging, but this is, has to do with how it's gonna be experienced by us. Is it gonna be experienced in sweet communion or in loving discipline because the Bible says God chastens, he disciplines, he spanks those that he loves. So, I mean, I mean, just, you know, think about being a parent. The Bible says if you love your child, you discipline your child. But from a childhood point of view, I mean, part, I mean, I do know that my parents love me, and part of the way I know they love me, they disciplined me, but it was much more enjoyable to experience their love in giving gifts than in giving discipline. And that's what Jesus is saying here, right? We need the discipline sometimes because of our sin. I mean, I remember the last spanking my dad ever gave me, and I think it set me on the right path for the rest of my life. <laughs> 
uh, I mean, I deserved it because I threw a Tonka truck at my brother, and this isn't some of this cheap plastic garbage they make today. It could have killed him if it hit him, and some of you remember those maybe. So I deserved it. That's what we experience from God sometimes, and that's love. But it's better to abide in his love to, to, because we're doing what he tells us to do, to not experience it in discipline, but to experience it in blessing. That's what he's saying here. He's saying our love is expressed by our actions. Now, let me illustrate it for you this way. So some of you probably know about this. Some of you don't because, you know, you're in the first service. But I guess it was on April the 18th. So Christopher Best, who's a senior at West, one of our students here, uh, got saved and, and actually got baptized after the service that day. And so um, he messaged, I'm sharing this with his permission. Uh, so he messaged, he's been messaging me some questions. We've talked and some different things. But he messaged me this question recently. So he says, after reading Matthew 22, 36 through 40, I'd like your thoughts on something. What does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and treasure him above all else in the context of a flawed believer? Fluffy feelings or a life of ready, although imperfect obedience? Maybe both are necessary to fulfill the, the commandment. Uh, that's a great question for somebody who's been a Christian for about three weeks at that point. Um, and, and so... Uh, the way I answered the question was by not actually answering the question, really. But uh, I directed him to Bible Gateway and encouraged him to, which if you're not familiar with that, it's like an online Bible concordance and like you can plug in love and it's gonna you know, give you all the references to it in the Bible. And so I encouraged him to do that and find the references in, in the New Testament and see what he thinks and then uh, we'll talk about it. So this is what he came back with. He says, well, there's Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. John 3, 19, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we can determine what we love by our works and what we prioritize in our lives to an extent. It's absolutely true, right? What we love, we prioritize. Romans 5, 5 seems to indicate that when we are saved, God gives us love. Because it says, as we read before, God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, if you have a newfound concern for others and fear of God, that's the Holy Spirit giving you love for him. And he says, I think my conclusion here is that to love God means to submit and dedicate yourself to him in all things willingly and joyfully with the help of the Holy Spirit. I can't improve on that. Uh, we love God when we submit ourselves to him, when we dedicate ourselves to him, our love is expressed by our obedience. Do we love him enough to obey him? Are we doing what he wants us to do instead of what we want to do? And here's the thing. If we really trust him, if we really believe he, lo we really believe he loves us this much, why would we not obey him? Because isn't his way for us better than our own way if he loves us like this? That's how it all connects together. And that's why the Bible teaches us that our faith is demonstrated by our works. Talk's cheap. Listen, we can talk about loving God. We can come to church and sing the songs. But if we're doing our own thing, going our own way all through the week, we don't love God, period. That's what this text is saying. Number three, let's look at just quickly 
some of the things, and there's about half a dozen things that Jesus talks about here that this kind of love results in in our lives. In, in verse 11, he talks about his joy being with us. And, and, and isn't the inevitable result of this kind of love gonna be joy? I mean, think about uh, like when you first fell in love, you first got married, just the, the, the joy that came out of that. Think about when a child's born, the joy that comes out of that love. I don't know, think about like the end of a Hallmark movie when what you knew was gonna happen for the last two hours actually happens and, and the joy that everyone is experiencing in that. I mean, there's, there's love, there's joy just in knowing that you're loved. I mean, that just makes you feel good. And, and, and of course, joy is, goes beyond happiness because happiness is a fleeting emotion. Joy is something from the Holy Spirit. It's, it, it's something in our hearts that, that God does that's, that's a byproduct of, of, of his love. We're gonna talk about this later in the series, but I don't think it's coincidental. The first fruit of the Spirit is love, and then other things are gonna flow out of that. But number two, he talks about here a close relationship. Look at what he said in verse uh, 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do whatever I command. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. Do you understand? This is the actual point of true biblical Christianity. It's not just a dead, dull, dry religion. It's a loving, living, vibrant relationship with a loving God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus, you know, he was physically uh, present with these uh, d disciples and he said, you're my friends. And you're like, well, he's not here. Uh, I can't match that. That's not true though. With the disciples, Jesus was God with them. Today, the Holy Spirit is God in us. We're the temple of God. God is present in our lives. That's the closeness of this love relationship we have with him. That's the relationship. The question is, what kind of fellowship are we gonna have? Because it's like any other relationship. Listen, Robin and I, as of Wednesday, have been married 31 years. And, but, you know, we're not any more married today, 31 years and four days later than we were on May the 12th, 1990. Because when it comes to marriage, either you are or you ain't, right? I mean, uh, we got married, we're fully married. But the fellowship can be up and down, could come and go depending on, you know, our connection, our closeness, uh, you know, how much time we're spending together, our communication, all those kind of things go into our fellowship with God. But listen, we're, we can be as close to God as we want to be. He's not going to move. He's in us. Number three, part of this love is revelation. Jesus talked about here, uh, uh, you know, making known what he's doing to them. He said, once again, well, Jesus isn't here with us like he was with them. Right? You want to hear from God? Just read this book. It's the revelation of God in our lives. And you know what? He loves us so much that he's given us his Holy Spirit to help us to understand. Part of the reason I read that from Chris, he's been a Christian less than a month now. If you've got the Holy Spirit and you're seeking God, you can understand the word of God. 
You don't need me. I'm not a priest. You don't need me uh, to bring you to God. You don't need me uh, to tell you how to believe. Uh, you've got the Holy Spirit who uh, the, the Bible talks about in 1 John. There's, he, there's an anointing from him where he's going to teach us. He's going to lead us uh, into truth. I think the question is, is just how much are we seeking him? If you don't feel loved by God, my question would be, is how much time are you spending with God? Because his love is there, but you may not be doing what Jesus said in these verses and abiding in his love. He gives us a purpose, and our purpose is to bear fruit for the glory of God. He talks about that in verse 16. He loves us too much to let us waste our lives. And then he talks about answered prayer. Verse 16, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that, that you should go and, and, and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, that he may give you. Does this mean, is this like just a, a blanket um, thing where like, you know, we can claim whatever we want from God? We know that's not true. John wrote in 1 John, then we pray according to the will of God. That's when our prayers are answered. Uh, but here's the thing. The closer we are to him, the more we're abiding in his love, the more obedient we are, the more that we're thinking his thoughts, the more that we have his heart, the more our prayers are gonna be answered because the more we're gonna pray actually according to God's will and not our own. But it's all coming out of this love relationship with him. And then last thing is we express this love then by loving others. Once again, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. So he's talking about God's love in us and then God's love flowing out of us to others. We're not, we're not designed to be reservoirs. We're designed to be conduits. God wants his love to flow through us to other people, to impact other people. But I think the foundation of this is understanding how loved we are, understanding who we are in Christ. That's what sets us free to really love others. Let me, let me show you this by way of example, okay? John chapter 3, verse 35. This is just kind of background that I want to show you something from John 13 that will amplify what we're talking about. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, just keep that in your mind. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, notice John chapter 13. So this is the passage at the Last Supper where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Now, notice how it introduces it. Verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Remember John three thirty five. the Father loves me and has given all things into my hands. And that he had come from God and was going to God. In other words, Jesus understood his identity. He knew he was loved. He knew the Father had given all things into his hands, that he has all authority, that he's sovereign. He knew that he had come from God. He's the son of God. He knew he was going back to God. He, he knew who he was. It says he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and, and girded himself. And John Maxwell rightly says of this, you have to be secure to stoop. You have to be secure to serve. It says, after that, he poured water into a basin 
and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So think about it. The Lord of lords and King of kings took the place of the lowest household servant and washed their feet. Why would he do that? How does it apply to us? I think here's the principle. The security of the love of God and knowing our identity in Christ makes us secure enough to serve. Listen, if you know you're loved, you know you're a child of God, you know you're accepted, you don't have to live your life to try to impress everybody else. You don't have to live your life as a taker. You can live your life as a giver, knowing who you are in Jesus Christ, that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, knowing you're a child of God, knowing that you're loved, knowing that God is gonna take care of you, knowing that he has a plan for your life, knowing that someday that you are going to go uh, to him because of who we are in Christ, we can be who we ought to be to other people. The love of God, though, is the foundation of our lives. We're loved. We reflect that love back, though, by loving God and by loving others. Why is this so important in our world today? Well, it's important for some of you because you're hurting. Life's hard. Maybe you feel empty. Just things are painful. But despite your circumstances, if you're in Christ, God's love has been poured out in your heart and you can tap into that. You can experience that. If you're not a Christian, God loved you enough to send his son to die for you. And if you'll repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can know him, you can be forgiven, you can experience this love in its fullness. Listen, in Christ, we can live out of this identity that we're beloved, that God is well-pleased with us. We're accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in Jesus Christ. So we don't have to live our lives with all this striving, and we don't have to live our lives trying to get external things to fill the emptiness on the inside, and we don't have to live our lives as a taker, and we don't have to live our lives for ourselves, but we can live as a giver. We can live as a blessing to other people. We can love and serve because we're secure in who we are in Christ. But then, I just want you to think for a minute just what the world's like right now. And you know, we can whine and moan and gripe and complain, or we can make a difference. What if the church of Jesus Christ, I'm talking collectively, rose up filled with the love of God, and instead of advancing hate and division, we were conduits of love to the world around us. Conduits of love to the people around us. I mean, who do you know right now that's lonely and hurting and struggling and going through a difficult time that you can share the love of Jesus Christ with? Who do you know that's lost and separated from God, dead in their trespasses and sins that you can share the gospel with, that you can share the love of Jesus Christ with? That's how we make a difference. That's what this world needs. And one life at a time we can make the world a better place. Listen, this is the world's hope. This is what is needed. And this is what God is calling us to as individuals and as a church. 
I was listening to a podcast the other day and a guy named Dave Ferguson, who's been very influential in my life in regard to church planning and multiplication, said this about COVID and it applies to um, everything though. He said, when fear sees a crisis, faith sees an opportunity. When fear sees a crisis, faith sees an opportunity. And I believe the world right now has the greatest opportunity that it's ever had for the spread of the gospel. Because if something supernatural doesn't happen, I think we're just about to implode. Once again, we can gripe or we can make a difference. Do we really believe the gospel? Do we believe that we have the power of the Holy Spirit? Let's go make a difference with the love of Jesus Christ. God is positioning us to do that more and more as a church. You'll understand that statement better in just a few minutes, but uh, he has big things for us. He wants to use us. Let's let him use us. You know, there's so many cliches, so many songs about love, but it really is what we need. And this is real love. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes if we could. Father, again, I just pray that you would pour out your love in our hearts. God, I pray that uh, our love would abound more and more. God, I pray that you convict people of their sins and regenerate their hearts and grant repentance and faith. Lord, turn them to you. And I just wanna ask you in this moment, what do you need to do with this message? There may be some of you that your response is to receive Jesus Christ, to call on his name. I'm talking here in the room, online. If, if you believe in your head that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that he rose from the dead, but you've never truly by faith committed your life to him, he invites you to do that right now, just to surrender to ask him to forgive you, to ask him to come into your life and to take control of you, to ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. And I just encourage you just to call on his name and to do that. If you've got questions, if you'd like us to help you with that, come see me when we're finished. Or if you're online, uh, go in the chat, the comments, contact our host, fill out the connection card, text TLC decision to 94,000. Just let us know in some way. We'd love to follow up with you.